Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Brandon Monroe, uranium market commentator and also CEO of Bannerman Resources. They're an ASX-listed junior uranium company with assets in Namibia. And today we have questions sent in by our listeners, viewers, and subscribers. Some interesting questions. Also, a quick reminder that we all start from different levels of understanding and knowledge. And uh, today we kind of go through some of the topics we may have discussed in pre previous uh, series, but also some definitions uh, and understanding about relationships and how the variables, people, uh, and companies fit together. Plus for our Crux Club members, there are two exclusive insights from Brandon and he goes into great detail. I don't think you'll want to miss them. Enjoy the podcast. Brandon Monroe, how are you doing, sir? I'm well. How are you, Matt? All good. All good. Well, actually, not all good. My 12-year-old took me swimming for non-stop lengths of the pool, then made me tread water for five minutes, then made me do pull-ups, and I can barely move. I am incapacitated like the old man that I am, and uh, I can't sleep. So um, that's me. Woe is me. Oh, gee, that's tough, eh? Did, were you able to do the pull-ups all on your own, or did you need to get pushed a little bit? I, I think the problem was I did do them on my own, and I've, I've literally just ruined my back. That's, that was three days ago. Too old. That's too old. Look, shall I, shall I, uh, let's get, get into something I, I, I think I can manage, which is asking questions. Um, so... It's another week in the world of uranium, um, and I thought this week we'd change it up a bit. We've got loads of questions coming in every week, which people want to put to you, and we've, we've put some down on paper and some broad headings. I think we might do some more than next week, because there's a lot, even, even if we do consolidate them to broad headings. So are you, are you ready for this? Are you okay? Yeah? Sounds exciting to me. Okay. Okay, fine. I'm going to start with an easy one, which we have covered off in the early days, but some people haven't necessarily had time to go back through the series. But... Let's just talk about an easy uh, amuse-bouche for you, which is um, how is spot price determined? Okay, well, that is a nice warm-up one, isn't it? Mm. So it's first thing to understand is it's not like a clearinghouse spot price that we see in certain other metals. Um, it is a reported spot price. So uh, there's a handful of reporters. Um, the best known of them are Trade Tech and UX Consulting. And what they do is they basically keep their finger on the pulse in the best way that they can to understand who is buying what, in what volumes, at what price. So the first limitation is it's not going through a clearinghouse or an exchange. So there is some capacity for uh, partial accuracy. Um, and that has been improved. It's been improved, first of all, because there is a quoted futures exchange, which gives, uh, I think, a more accessible level of information to investors. And um, that's a NYMEX futures exchange, which you can look up, say, on barchart.com. Um, and then the other thing is we've seen the emergence of traders who are very transparent, such as Numerco. So well worth looking up Numerco, following them on Twitter, and they've really had a positive impact on that level of transparency. So the second thing to understand about the spot market is it's not an immediate delivery market. In fact, spot can be anything up to 12 months delivery and it's still categorized that way. So that 
is much to the irritation of some of the larger producers, um, Cameco, Kazadamprom, for example, who want to move this market to a more realistic immediate delivery or short-term delivery market. Um, the other thing to understand is uh, as investors, we see the price, but it does differ depending on the delivery point. So the spot or the price that's quoted for say two week delivery at Cameco might be different to the price that's quoted for two week delivery at Comerex in France, for example, or in the US. And we've seen that play a big role just recently uh, because of uh, disruption in both conversion and uranium coming out of COVID, we've seen a lack of uh, storage capacity at Comerex in France. And so a very big swing between what's being paid for delivery in Cameco, um, the Blind River, and Comerex in France. Um, so normally the location swaps in this sector have been very, very fine, but that's now changed temporarily, no doubt, but it's a big swing and a big arbitrage if uh, people are able to move material move in the sense of a location swap at the moment. So they're, they're the key downsides of what we've got at the moment with Spot. It's a, it's a lack of accurate transparency. It's a multitude of different delivery forms and locations. Okay, so for people coming into uranium, looking at investors coming into the uranium space and looking at it as a potential investment, I think that's the first thing they look at. They think of like other commodities, you look at the spot price and that determines the market. Once you sort of move slightly further up that knowledge curve, you start to appreciate that, in fact, term contracting or long-term contracts um, have a more significant role to play. So let's just try and understand, if, if, if you may, um, the, the relationship between spot and term contracts. Yeah, very good question, particularly for people coming new into the sector. Traditionally, this business was done almost entirely on long-term contracts um, between the utilities and the big producers. And, and that situation continued well into 2004, 2005. And the spot market, such as it was, was really used for uh, settling, say, overproduction by a mine that uh, couldn't be delivered into contracts, or sometimes buying back production if there was a disruption or for some reason they'd oversold or got overcalled on the production limits in their contracts. Now, what happened in the last uranium boom is financial players came into the sector. There was a huge increase in volume generally, and that made the spot market fulfill a number of other functions, not just that form of settlement of overs and unders under contracts. Then what we saw after Fukushima was a sustained period of low contracting, relatively speaking, and much higher spot volumes. So instead of spot accounting for, say, 5 to 10% of the movement of material in the market, in some years it's been as high as 50%. Uh, we've seen an increased role of traders. Uh, so there's the concept of churn in that spot market. So it's not necessarily one pound being pulled out of a mine and sold to a utility, but that pound can be churned many, many times to create additional volume. But what we've also seen is the emergence in particular of Kazakh production, a fair proportion of which went into the spot market until fairly recently. 
So that's important to understand as well as you're taking a little bit of an introductory trip into this sector. Uh, the important news is Kazakhstan has stopped selling into spot. They haven't sold into spot since I think the beginning of uh, 2018. So no longer is there that pressure. And if we now bring that right back to a contemporary setting, one of the impacts of the COVID disruption in Kazakhstan is that uh, at least one of the, let's call it major culprits who sell their mined material into the spot market, derive the majority of that material from their joint venture in Kazakhstan with Kazatomprom. So even though Kazatomprom isn't selling into spot, their joint venture partner was. So what we're likely to see coming out of COVID disruption is both an increased demand, particularly if Kazatomprom's forced into the spot market to compete with Cameco and other producers, but also a lot of the supply will be cut off at the knees because those parties who traditionally sold their joint venture material into the spot market can no longer do that. So term contracts, whilst there's a low relative volume of term contracts at the moment, they are such an important part of the risk mitigation and supply security that utilities rely on in this business that they will come back. Um, spot probably won't go into the dormancy that it was in the 2000s, but its relative position will reduce as the importance of term contracting increases. Got it. Okay. So let's move further up that knowledge curve. Okay. So we talked last week at length and possibly the week before actually um, about the importance of Kazakhstan and Kazatomprom to the uranium market. So Kazakhstan represents about 40% of production globally. Kazatomprom has 24% of that. They occupy almost entire, the entire bottom quartile of the cost um, uh, curve there. So it, it, they are very, very important. So, you know, again, people new coming into this, recognizing this, some of the questions you've had are, how lo much longer can Kazatomprom hold off from getting into production, either forced or unforced? Um, you know, and what are the, what, how can they mitigate um, that? Okay, so let's be clear on what we're talking about. Um, Kazatomprom and Kazakh production is still continuing and that's because before their 7 April announcement that they were needing to curtail activities, they'd already done wellhead development and acidified their in-situ recovery wells. So the acid that they pumped in in January, February, March, for example, is still producing uranium today. It is starting to deplete. It's becoming um, less potent, if we can put it that way. But nonetheless, they are still bringing a solution up to the surface and extracting uranium. So what we're really talking about here is not production per se, but their ability to start again with the drilling of these extraction wells and the pumping of the acid in so that they can allow it to acidify the ore and start bringing that solution up. And finally, the point to understand here is there could be a gap where the current production from January, February, March acidification tapers off to such an extent that there is effectively a, a full, a, a significant or majority break in production. So to answer your question, you're working in scenarios always with this type of thing. What Kazatomprom have said publicly is that they will start slowly to recommence wellhead development from the beginning of August. Um, now, we're all waiting for their third August uh, 
uh, quarterly update because in the meantime and since they gave that guidance, the lockdowns in Kazakhstan, uh, in Kazakhstan have been extended and there's an awful lot of commentary and news flow coming out of Kazakhstan that suggests that things will get extended again. But be that as it may, let's work with what's in the public domain right now. That wellhead development would be slowly reinitiated from August. I read that to mean that the most optimistic scenario we're dealing with here is that they would spend, let's say, four to six weeks slowly mobilising and the well development itself in the most optimistic scenario would be running at full steam, let's say mid-September. That will then take some time, several weeks, and uh, it's not like they can play catch up across all of those different 13 mine sites. And then there's a process of acidification and in the, optimized, uh, in the optimistic scenario, that would all take place before the winter sets in and then they would be back to normalised uh, solution recovery by, let's say, November. And we would still see the dip in production because of that lag effect, and that dip would still carry on into 2021 to an extent. But you could probably realistically see them um, back to normal production levels by, let's say, the second quarter of 2021. Okay. Um, that's the most uh, optimistic. That's my, right. Okay, which I think answers the question that we were, we were sent. Um, so, and that's something that people are going to watch very, very closely. What will Kazatomprom do? What will Cameco do? The two, the two big players in the marketplace. Okay, um, let's kind of let's move, move it forward. So, you know, again, I'm just a, all levels of ability watching this show. Um, quite clear from the questions that are sent in, and we need to make sure everyone's comfortable and, and learns with us you know we're, we're moving forward towards the same place um so the next question is around now that we sort of understand some of the players um a lot of people are recognizing that u.s utilities are very important they're very important because it, they they represent 25 percent of the world's global demand for uh, uranium um and the question is do um different utilities from different countries have a propensity or a favoritism to go to certain countries. So do the French always, the French utilities always look in Africa? Do the um, US utilities always favor Canada, for instance? So, you know, how, how, how does it work when you're a utility buyer? Well, I think the answer to that is one of those classic yes and no answers. So if we talk about the French, for example, so Electricity de France is the world's largest utility because it's responsible for 75% uh, of France's total electricity demand. Um, so EDF have had a long-standing relationship in Niger, which has been effectively backed by the French government. So it's a bilateral relationship, not purely a commercial one. So they've derived a large proportion of their uranium from Niger but they're also in a joint venture in Kazakhstan. Uh, they have production coming out of Cameco in joint venture, uh, out of Ca uh, Canada in joint venture with Cameco. And I think because of their comfort in Niger, they've also been happy doing um, exploration and development work in Namibia, for example, as well as Australia and elsewhere. Um, they've been rationalizing in recent times, uh, trying to reduce the expanse of their uranium business and there were a couple of 
kind of spectacular examples of that, but that's a story to tell another day. Now, they, they do also have trading businesses. They do also buy and sell in the spot market and contract with others and so on. But there's something of an outlier. Then let's look at China. So the Chinese model is a lot closer to the Arano slash EDF model. Uh, they are buying heavily in the market and they have been for quite a number of years, um, back all the way to 2006. Um, they also have a strong preference to deal in Namibia and that's for an, a range of reasons that would include the sort of preference that Western companies would have in Namibia and also the fact that um, the, because of the extent of their investments in Namibia, they're obviously able to have a, a, the sort of relationship with the local Namibian community and the Namibian government that gives them a lot of comfort. And uh, one Chinese utility, CNNC, has the Rossing uranium mine and a 25% interest in Langer Heinrich, which is the Paladin Energy mine uh, that's on care and maintenance. And the other Chinese utility, CGN, uh, owns the Husab mine that they paid $2.4 billion for from extract resources back in 2012. Uh, the third Chinese nuclear utility, SPIC, has not yet acquired a mine in Namibia, Africa, or anywhere in the world. So they're the two major outliers. Then you've got the US uh, industry. And as you've said, they are important. They still comprise roughly 25% of uranium demand around the world. Um, what happened is back in the seven, late 70s, early 80s, a few utilities clubbed together to buy mines and got their noses bruised and broken doing that. So you, US utilities buying mines and operating mines is not a very popular thing at the moment and it's a bit frowned upon. So it's all commercial relationships and they buy across the board and that's all um, publicly available. You can um, go to the EIA uh, report that came out a couple of months ago. You can see that the US utilities buy from Canada, they buy from Australia, um, they buy from Namibia, they buy from Kazakhstan and they buy from Russia. And um, so there is a propensity to buy from closer allies such as Canada and Australia um, but uh, there isn't um, any explicit limits other than the Russian suspension agreement on how much uranium they can buy from uh, anyone else. Well, that leads nicely on to again a topic we did dis discuss last week and, and a few weeks ago as well which is the RSA. So we we had Dustin Garrow on earlier this week um, very well-known character, a, a uranium consultant to many in the industry. And he's been around the block a few times and seen the highs and the lows. Um, he was talking to us about the RSA agreement, which is the Russian suspension agreement. And it's a very important topic, which the US government is uh, in the process of making some decisions on. And the expectation is that, well, I think you told us last week, it needs, the decision needs to be made before the end of the year, because we're not quite sure what will happen if they don't. Um, he put a very interesting thought forward, which is at the time that this Russian suspension agreement was put together, back in the 90s, it was a very different world. There were very different um, demands in terms of the volume of uranium used, um, and that you know Russia felt the US market was a very important market to get into, and obviously the US didn't want them flooding the market either because for a variety of reasons, national security being one of them. Um, Dustin's thought or 
put this forward, which was, you know, why should Russia care now in today's environment when there is a much bigger demand story? There are new markets. Why keep banging down the door of the US market? Well, that is an interesting question. And, you know, Dustin's certainly the guy to come up with those questions with such a vast amount of experience in the industry, including back in the old days when there was a bifurcated market with Russian material and non-Russian material and what was allowed into the US and so on. So he's got some insights from those days that not many people have got anymore. So here's the thing. So first of all, the Ros Adam group of companies are extremely effective in this industry. They build plants on time, on budget. All of the, they're in every aspect of the nuclear fuel supply chain and they do it well. And they pride themselves on their delivery. So they, I'm confident in saying, would not want to be the instigators of any breach of supply. They wouldn't call force majeure. They wouldn't withdraw unilaterally or voluntarily. But I think Dustin's question and comment probably goes more to the situation where they're not allowed into the market um, by US government or by negotiations between the US and Russia. And how would they react? And Dustin does make a good point in that uh, for Rosatom to lose their access to the US market with their enrichment in particular, sure, it would be a shame for them and it would affect them, um, but it wouldn't be a disaster. Russia's got very significant demands on uranium for its own, both its domestic requirements, but also its export program. And if they were left in a hole with their capacity for enrichment or SWU, they could redirect that capacity at re-enriching tails and other forms of secondary supply that would still have a happy home in their uranium requirements going now and going forward. So it wouldn't be a disaster for them. And it would have an impact, however, on US utilities. And depending on how far you want to go down this in terms of geopolitical posturing and how much of a conspiratorial approach you want to take to this, um, it would have the effect of uh, putting a splinter in the finger of the US nuclear fleet because it would make their enrichment quite a bit more expensive. Um, the utilities would then have to very quickly recover that enrichment from non-Russian sources and non-Chinese sources. Uh, and there isn't an awful lot of that. So it would have two effects on the uranium market as well as increasing their, the utilities fuel costs and their efficiency of producing energy. So the first effect on the uranium market is it would quite quickly absorb the excess capacity in the non-Russian enrichment sector, which means less underfeeding, which means less secondary supply of uranium that can make it into the market. Now, the second effect that it'd have is, let's say that we saw spiraling SWU prices. Um, SWU is a separative work unit, which is the way that enrichment is priced. A spiraling SWU price would create an incentive for not only underfeeding to stop, but if uranium is still relatively cheap, what the US utilities could do is they could overfeed. In other words, they pay a lot less SWU and they buy a lot more U308 so that they can push a lot of U3 through at higher tails assays. And for people new to this, what probably the best thing to do is to go back to some of uh, our discussions where we really talk about the nuclear fuel process 
and the whole cycle as it relates to conversion and enrichment. But for everyone who's not coming here for the first time, that could create a situation where we see increased demand from the US utilities. And in the time frame that we'd be talking about, what that probably means is very um, accelerated drawdown on existing inventory of U308 and UF6 to fill that gap. It will affect different utilities in different ways. The utilities who are more, uh, who are counting more heavily on Russian enrichment would find themselves needing to act more quickly and more decisively. And of course, you know, for someone who might not have been concentrating as much, this is a speculative scenario that we're answering. So this is a scenario where there isn't an agreement reached. There isn't an act of Congress that uh, comes to a resolution where there's a limitation and uh, the existing currently suspended uh, dumping investigation resumes with the imposition of some very serious tariffs onto the Russian industry and they decide, look, that's just not worth it, we're going to withdraw. It's, I mean, it's a very interesting scenario that you've described there because it would suggest, it, it, one could argue that the US um, can't do without some Russian supply. And if that is the case, you know, what is the number? Is that 20% number reasonable? Um, because obviously, you know, if the price goes up for utilities, that's it's, it's not significant in the scheme of the total investment in terms of a reactor, but it's significant in terms of ongoing costs, given that the capital expenditure is a sunk cost now. Uh, and when they're competing against gas and renewable, it, 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 it's, it's meaningful to them. Um, but the problem has been that some utilities are not sticking to that 20% number. Isn't that just a case of, so why, why are we focusing on the Russians and not on the utility buyers who are not regulated or not sticking to that 20% number? Well, it's a global number. So presumably those utilities were looking to get out in, ahead of each other and scoop, speculatively scoop uh, the cheap material away from each other. Um, and I guess they're just taking their chances on the uh, extension of the Russian suspension agreement and their material being available to them. Can I just clar clarify terminology? When you say global, you mean a global US utility number, not... I beg your pardon, yeah. It's an aggregate aggregate um, number amongst... So yeah. first come, first served is the attitude. Yep. Right. Um, but your, your point, I think what I take from that point that you make is uh, it's not going to... Um, be a total disaster for the US utilities, but it will increase their cost and it will increase their cost quite significantly. Um, they pay about 20% of their operating costs as the total nuclear fuel. Now that's your U308 through to your conversion, through to your enrichment, your fabrication and storage and so on. Um, but enrichment at the moment is a relatively minor component of that. But if you saw a market suddenly rebalanced because all of the Western enrichment capacity is removed by US utilities filling the gap and putting their finger in the dike, well, then you'll see proper price discovery and probably market prices in SWU, which will increase that little component that's enrichment and possibly have a three or four percentile um, increase in the cost of electricity delivery for many of those utilities. Okay. Well, look, Brandon, I think we're going to switch over to the club section for Crux Investor Club members. We've got two quite good stories, I think, this week. Quite insightful and, I think, impactful in terms of 
investment decision making. So I'm going to do that. So thank you very much, everyone, for watching the show uh, this week. That was quite fun answering all of those sort of random yeah. questions. Normally, normally with our weekly chat, we've got like a nice thread and I've had a bit of chance to think about it and, and so on. So yeah, that's fun. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.